Well, we're going to look at Lord's Day 46 from our catechism. But before we look at that, I'd like to read with you another psalm. This is Psalm 147, one of the final psalms. And those final numbers in our Psalter really are songs of praise. But in praising God, they make beautiful confession about the nature and the work of our God. And Psalm 147 focuses on his, both his actual help of his people and his ability to help his people and how he, he helps his people Israel uniquely. You'll notice at the end of the psalm how it speaks of what he does to Jacob and for Israel. That was referring to the covenant people of the Lord in the Old Testament age. And that really refers to the church today. The the people whom God has gathered to Himself, upon whom He has set His name, in distinction from those who continue to live in rebellion against Him. So this is a psalm of the church, singing praise to God who has uniquely blessed us. Listen, praise the Lord. It is good to sing praises to our God, for it is pleasant and praise is beautiful. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers together the outcasts of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. He counts the number of the stars. He calls them all by name. Great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding is infinite. The Lord lifts up the humble. He casts the wicked down to the ground. Sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. Sing praises on the harp to our God, who covers the heavens with clouds, who prepares rain for the earth, who makes grass to grow on the mountains, who gives to the beast its food and to the young ravens that cry. He does not delight in the strength of a horse. He takes no pleasure in the legs of a man. The Lord takes pleasure in those who fear Him, in those who hope in His mercy. Praise the Lord, O Jerusalem. Praise your God, O Zion, for He has strengthened the bars of your gates. He has blessed your children within you. He makes peace in your borders and fills you with the finest wheat. He sends out His command to the earth. His word runs very swiftly. He gives snow like wool. He scatters the frost like ashes. He casts out His hail like morsels. Who can stand before His cold? He sends out His word and melts them. He causes the wind to blow and the waters flow. He declares His word to Jacob, His statutes and His judgments to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any nation, and as for His judgments, they have not known them. Praise the Lord. Amen. Well, it's in that light, speaking of God's omnipotence, but also His loving grace, that Lord's Day 46 addresses the the initial address of the Lord's Prayer. Right? The initial we, we saw how what the nature of prayer is last week and how essential it is as the chief part of the gratitude that God requires of us. Lord's Day forty six starts to get into the meat of what it is that we're praying when we pray the Lord's Prayer. And it starts by asking why did Christ command us to call God our Father? The answer is, at the very beginning of our prayer, Christ wants to kindle in us what is basic to our prayer. The childlike awe and trust that God, through Christ, has become our Father. Our fathers do not refuse us the things of this life. God, our Father, will even less refuse to give us what we ask in faith. Well, then why the words, who art in heaven? 
These words teach us not to think of God's heavenly majesty as something earthly and to expect everything for body and soul from His almighty power. Amen. Beloved of God, through Jesus our Lord, one day Jesus sat down on a mountain to teach. His disciples surrounding Him. The crowd surrounding them. We call that time which is described in Matthew 5 through 7 and elsewhere as we call it the sermon on the mount and that sermon on the mount revealed many essential lessons about how we should understand our relationship to God how we should understand his commands to us what it should look like if we're truly disciples of the Lord living a life that not only is pleasing to him but a life that is responding to the salvation that he gives in Jesus. And some of what he said there was, was truly radical, including something central to his teaching about prayer. This is where we find the Lord's Prayer. And just before he speaks those words, he says, In this manner, therefore, pray. Our Father in heaven. Now you know the rest of the prayer. It's the, the first prayer many of us learned to pray. We continue to use that prayer throughout our lives as adults. We're called to model all of our praying on the principles encompassed in that prayer. But I doubt we often consider how radical, how very stunning was the start of this prayer when Jesus spoke it. In this manner, therefore, pray our Father in heaven. In that age, no Israelite would have dared to refer to God as his own father. The implications were too serious. The one making that claim would have been accused of blasphemy, as Jesus himself was, as we read in John 5, when he called God his own father. Many were so offended at that time that they were ready to kill him for blasphemy. So then why would Jesus have taught us to pray in this way? Well, he did it, my friends, because in doing so, Jesus wanted to teach us about God's nature as well as his relationship with us. He wanted to call us to offer our prayer to God as he really is and to God as we are are to relate ourselves to him. Now, remember what prayer is. It's not a wish like some people make when they see a falling star. Nor is it a magical formula that gets you whatever you want as long as you say the right words in the, same, in the right order. True prayer is speaking to the Lord our God, to the Creator of heaven and earth. Doing so through Christ from the heart. And Jesus wants us to see that such prayer must not be meek, it must not be filled with doubt, but rather it's a, a speaking of God's people to those whom He loves, who are to love Him with confidence expressing their hearts to the Lord. And so that's what we see in this opening to the Lord's Prayer. In this manner, therefore, pray, our Father in heaven. That's Christ calling us to pray with confidence in our Heavenly Father. And that's our theme. Christ calls us to pray with confidence in our Heavenly Father. And by calling God our Heavenly Father, such prayer reveals, first of all, confidence that rests on God's eternal love. When we talk about prayer and how we are to pray to God, we need to start by, by asking then, how is it that Jesus can call us God's children? 
How is it that we can stand before God acknowledging Him as our Father, especially when the Bible describes Jesus as God's only begotten Son? How then can we call ourselves God's children? Well, Lord's Day 13 of our catechism really summarizes what Scripture teaches in this respect. Why is Jesus called God's only begotten Son when we also are God's children? And the answer it gives is that Christ alone is the eternal, natural Son of God. But we, however, are the adopted children of God, adopted by grace through Jesus Christ. That tells us three essential things about our relationship with God. First of all, it tells us that He is our Father by adoption. Ephesians 1 says that God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love. He had to choose us to be His children because God is holy. He cannot abide in His presence anything, anyone who is unholy. But He knew, even before Adam sinned, He knew that we would choose rebellion. And so if we were to have a relationship with Him, much less such an intimate relationship, He would have to choose us and He would have to lay out everything that would need to happen in order to make us have that relationship with Him. He chose us to be adopted, to be brought into relationship with Him. That's, you know, when we began from the very word go. David says in Psalm 51 that we were conceived in sin. We were born in iniquity, right? And so that means that from the very start we were rebels. We were cut off from God by our sin. But He chose to bring us near. He chose to adopt us. And that adoption, secondly, comes through what Jesus Christ accomplished. Ephesians 1 also says that He predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to Himself. And then it says, in Him, in Jesus, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace. This tells us how that adoption came about. What God ordained in order to restore us to the Father. Jesus alone is the true Son of God. He's the one who, He's fully man, as was His mother Mary. But God is His natural Father. He's truly and fully God. Completely holy, completely without sin, absolutely righteous. He's the only one who deserved that intimate relationship of God's Son. And yet this perfect specimen of humanity, the only one, He suffered the punishment that our sins deserved. He died to pay for the sins of God's people. He arose from death to remove death's power from us. And because of what Jesus did, we were able to be adopted by God as His children. So He chose us to be adopted. He sent all that needed to occur through Jesus... And then He brought it about. He applied what Jesus did through faith. The Bible tells us that by faith we are united. We are joined to Jesus. And therefore we, or thereby we receive a share of His work. His death is counted as the payment for our sin. His resurrection is counted as our power over sin and death. It's on that basis, through our faith, through our being joined to Jesus spiritually by our faith, that we are adopted by God. So then it's by faith in Jesus, according to God's election, that we become God's children. And even for that faith itself, 
We owe God, Ephesians 2 tells us. He's the one who gave it to us. And He gave it to us sovereignly. We heard in Psalm 147, He declares His word to Jacob, His statutes and His judgments to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any nation. And as for His judgments, they have not known Him. Even for our receiving of the gospel truth, even for our understanding of our misery in sin, and Jesus' overcoming of that misery through His righteous acts of redemption, even for our understanding of that, We owe it entirely to Him. It was entirely God's sovereign gift. Now, why is all of that important to our prayer? Here's why. It shows us God's love for us. The false gods almost invariably they leave the initiative to man. You want to be a follower of Allah? Here are the things that you must do, the things that you must accomplish, the goals that you must meet. And if you do them, then you might be okay. He might accept you. You'll never have absolute assurance of that. Because it all rests in you. You want to follow the Jehovah's Witnesses or the Mormons? Same thing. They have some regard for God's grace. But at the end of the day, it's about how you obey, how you fulfill, how you act and do and accomplish. The initiative stands with you, and God stands aloof waiting for you to respond. But the true faith, the the faith described in the Bible says, no, you wouldn't. You were dead in your sin. You were His enemies. You hated Him. And when you hated Him, He sent His Son to die for the sins of those whom He had chosen, even though He knew they would be rebels. He sent His Word when He knew you wouldn't receive it and then imparted His Spirit so that you would be transformed, so that more and more you would see your sin, you would see your need, you would recognize that without Jesus you have nothing. And then He would impart the faith that would join you to Jesus, that would rescue you from your sin and that would make you His adopted children. Can we imagine a greater demonstration of sovereign love than that? 1 John chapter 3 The apostle exclaims, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. And that's what we are. What amazing love. Chapter 4 of 1 John says, In this the love of God was manifested toward us, that God sent His only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through Him. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. If that is not love... God sending His Son to redeem those who hated Him, then what is? Surely this love is revealed so powerfully in this adoption of us. And that demonstrates His trustworthiness. In fact, it reveals it so powerfully that we should be struck dumb with amazement. Our catechism tells us, in this... This is uh, the second half of uh, answer 120. At the very beginning of our prayer, Christ wants to kindle in us what is basic to our prayer, the childlike awe and trust that God through Christ has become our fathers. Our fathers 
Do not refuse us the things of this life. God, our Father, will even less refuse to give us what we ask in faith. When we consider that He gave us everything that was necessary to deliver us from the destruction and the punishment that we deserved, how can we not be convinced that He will give us the lesser things that we need for this life and the life to come? If you stop and ponder the price Jesus paid, To make us become God's children. If you stop to consider the depth and the breadth, the unimaginable extent of the love that God expressed in doing that, then there will be no doubt in your mind that He will give us whatever things we truly need in this life. And that He will will forbid or transform any bad thing that would truly ultimately be bad for us. So this call to regard God as our Father is a call to pray confidently because of His eternal fatherly love. We can seek the face of our Father confidently because we have experienced in our salvation, we have experienced how He loves us. And we need to rest in that love. That means when you pray, don't doubt. So easy to doubt. Satan whispers in your ear, surely God has better things to do than listen to your mutterings and your own conscience cries out I'm so inconsistent I fail so often why would God want to listen to the likes of me but Jesus says no pray our father we're speaking to one who intrinsically loves us to one who did everything necessary to adopt us it wasn't as though he got stuck with us as those those kids that he couldn't get rid no these are the children that he chose to have for himself he worked everything necessary in order to make us to be his children he wants to hear from us he wants that relationship with us and we can trust that he will hear us and he will answer Now, does that mean that He's going to give us everything that we need? Well, of course not. Our earthly fathers don't do that either, do they? Sometimes, as children, we ask for things that wouldn't, in fact, bless us. Sometimes children ask for things that would harm them. Sometimes children long for things that are destructive. And a loving father will refuse such a request in favor of something better. And so it is with our Heavenly Father. Never does He leave our prayers. Never does He leave our prayers unanswered. But instead, He gives us the good that we need, regardless of what we think we need, regardless of the folly that fills us in our immaturity. And so all the more we can trust Him, utterly confident of God's love. Folks, that knowledge, oh, that should lead us to rejoice and to pray all the more. Consider it, the Maker of heaven and earth. The sustainer of everything that is. The righteous judge who sits in judgment over all men. This God has become your Father who loves you with a love unimaginably great. Can you hear that and not rejoice? Can you understand that and not praise God? Psalm 147 reminds us. He is the one who has strengthened the bars of your gates. That means He has defended you, protected you against the enemy. He has blessed your children within you. He makes peace within your borders and fills you with the finest of wheat. He is the one who has given you all of the good that you have experienced. 
And he reminds us who have received such blessing. The Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him, in those who hope in his mercy. In other words, he doesn't want us trusting him and ourselves, him and politicians, him and particular systems, him and luck or karma or anything else. He wants us to trust him, to fear him, to rely on him alone. And then he wants us to praise your God, O Jerusalem. To praise Him, to give Him thanks, to acknowledge that it is your Father who has given you all the good things in life and it is your Father who superintends all the stuff that seems to be bad. And to be confident that our Father will never, ever, ever let us down. So we can pray with a confidence that rests on God's eternal love. But Jesus also, in teaching us to pray to our Father in heaven, teaches us to be confident for one other reason. He teaches us to be confident with a confidence that relies on His infinite ability. And that's our second point. The Catechism continues telling us that, that Jesus includes the words in heaven because these words teach us not to think of God's heavenly majesty as something earthly and to expect everything for body and soul from His almighty power. Now that lesson, the lesson of that answer in the Catechism rests on a particular understanding of the way things are. What is implicit there, what's understood there, is that men, people, cannot be trusted to meet our needs. Right? We heard that in Psalm 60. The help of man is useless. Why is the help of man useless? Well, men are sinful. Some will refuse in their laziness to do what we need them to do. Others will deceive us, saying they'll do one thing and doing another. Others will hurt us, increasing the struggle that we already have. We can't trust men, plus men are fallible. Even when they do their best, sometimes they err. They do what they think is wise, but it's really foolish. The best of a man isn't enough, and men are limited. They simply lack the capacity to meet our needs. Their strength is, is weak, really. Their wisdom only goes so far. And we know that. We know, theologically at least, we know that men are unfit. After all, all men are subject to the effects of the fall. All created things have been tainted with sin. Consequently, everything is, is out of whack. It's not functioning with its full capacity. And men are finite. Even without sin, we're limited because, of course, we're not God. God alone has perfect power and wisdom, unlimited understanding and ability. For example, we can know many true facts. But we can't know how all of those facts relate to all other facts and contingencies. You might understand far better than I do the way the earth rotates around the sun and the way the moon rotates around the earth. But do you understand the effect of that, those, those rotations of the spheres upon the trees in the Amazon forest? Or the impact on that rotational inertia of cutting down suddenly a thousand of those trees? Or, conversely, the impact on that rotational inertia of burning instead of cutting down those thousand trees. I don't know. I don't even know where you'd begin to focus on such a, a physics question. But God knows all of that and every other contingency. Or again, think of the weakness of man. The strongest of men 
in this world is still subject to gravity. There will always be that which the strongest man cannot lift, even if it's only the platform on which he stands. But God is able to do and to morph and to use all things. He created everything. Nothing is outside of his control. So while men will always at some point fall short, while men will always at some point fail us, our God is heavenly. Our Father is beyond the realms and the weaknesses and the limitations of the creation. He has not been changed or made less by the fall. Even the angels have been. I mean, you think about it. The angels, their number was radically decreased with the fall. A third of their number fell with Satan. Their mission was radically altered from what it had been. Suddenly they had to protect the holiness of God, where before there was no threat against that holiness. Their words now were misunderstood by men. They caused fear rather than joy. If that's true of the angels in heaven, how much less, or how much more so, the the creatures of this earth. Only God is untainted by sin and its limitations. And what's more, God is infinite. Listen to what... What Psalm 147 says about the power and the ability of God. Verse 5, great is our Lord and mighty in power. There is no one greater than our God. Nothing greater than our God. There's nothing that he could ever desire to do, that he could will to do, that he'd be unable to accomplish. His understanding is infinite. We talked about that. He doesn't just understand all facts. He understands all facts in relationship to all other facts. Verse 6, the Lord lifts up the humble. He casts the wicked down to the ground. Our God is the perfect judge. You know, our courts, we have some wonderful judges. We have some not so wonderful judges. But even our absolute best judges, sometimes they don't have all the facts. And the guilty get let free, set free while the innocent are convicted, but never with God. Never with God. On that last great day, we can be absolutely confident. He will condemn all of those who have remained in the sin that they have chosen. And He will pardon all of those who by His grace have been led into a relationship with Jesus Christ. He will never make a single mistake. Verses 8 and 9, who covers the heavens with clouds, who prepares rain for the earth, who makes grass to grow on the mountains. He gives the beast its food and the young ravens that cry. Even the natural processes, every one of them, rely upon the providence of our God. The cattle, the ravens, the very grass of the field know that God must provide for their daily existence. And therefore only the perfect plan and purpose of God will without fail be accomplished. Today in our nation, many people are looking to politicians or they're looking to their their savings or they're looking to their self-sufficiency to provide certainty in their life. But at the end of the day, there's no certainty in those things. Politicians will let you down, even the best of them. Money can only go so far and that's only if you can access it. Your self-sufficiency, all of your preparations, you know, at some point you're going to find there's a situation you didn't prepare for. None of it will in the end suffice. Only God is the sure source of our hope because He alone has infinite ability to deliver us, to provide for us, to preserve us. And how deeply we need that truth today. Right now as a nation, we're hurting, we're reeling. 
between the fear and the sickness caused by COVID-19 and the effect of seeking to limit its spread, which has crippled our economy, not to mention the division that fills our land. Anytime you talk about the subject and no one among men can fix it. But God can. He is powerful enough to heal those who are sick. He is wise enough to be able to turn all of these circumstances to our good. Our God might use this to bring revival throughout our land so that more and more people come to see their need for Christ. Or He might use it to continue bringing our nation to its knees that that something greater might rise up. We don't know how He will use this mess. But we know that our Father in heaven alone is able to use it all to bless His children and to advance His kingdom. So our calling is to keep God's infinite ability ever before us as we pray. That means we pray with confident reliance in God our Father, understanding that He is able to provide for us because He is heavenly and relying on that reality as our source of hope. Our catechism says that because of God's ability, we should expect everything for body and soul from His almighty power. That means we look to Him for our ordinary physical needs that we take for granted. Our food and clothing, our our health and our wealth. We can't overlook the fact that, well, children, why do we pray? Why do we say that prayer before we eat? It's because whether you're eating a a fine, spread-out meal, like maybe you had this, this afternoon for Mother's Day, or peanut butter and jelly and, and potato chips. God is the one who has given you that nourishment for your body. And we need to acknowledge that. We need to acknowledge that He's the one who gives us good rest at night. He's the one who allows our health to persist. All the common things of life are from His hand, and also the extraordinary things. When we're hurt, He's the one who brings healing. When we're lost, He's the one who finds us. When we're lonely, He's the one who loves us. When we're in danger, He's the one who protects us. Including for our souls. Not only does He create faith in us that we might be saved, but He continues to grow us so that more and more we begin to hate the sin that once filled us and cast it off. And we begin to cherish and long for the holiness that characterizes Christ and begin to take it on. And when Satan attacks or the fallen world threatens in God our Father alone, we know we can find refuge for our soul. God is able. And we are called to rely on Him. Brothers and sisters in our Lord, Psalm 147 reminds us, The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers together the outcasts of Israel. We exist as a church because He has gathered us and brought us together and knit us together as one. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. In our times of struggle and strife and brokenness, He's the one who provides. He counts the number of the stars. He calls them all by name. There is no limit to His power. Therefore, praise the Lord. It is good to sing praises to our God. We live in a time of great need. We live in a time when all of our neighbors are looking for a solid foundation. How can they know 
what the future holds when they don't know if their job will be there next week? How can they know how to care for their family when their their loved ones are isolated in a nursing home or their children's school is not happening or they can't go to the store without taking all kinds of precautions to avoid contact with other people. It's scary, especially for those who have no reliance on the Lord. But we pray to our Father in heaven, the one who loves us with a love that is absolute and unconditional, a love that is so great that He sent His Son to die that we might live, that He allowed His Son to be cast off that we might be embraced And He is our Father in heaven. There is no limit. There is no end. There is no boundary to His power, His ability to help us. So brothers and sisters, we must pray with the confidence that is due to our Father in heaven. And we must testify. This is the God whom we serve. This is the one who is the the reason for the hope within us. Because it is only by that testimony that our neighbor will hear that there is hope. It's only by that testimony that our neighbor will hear that there is an alternative. May God give us the opportunity to tell them. May God make our lives match that confession. So that more and more our our very being, the way we live and work and speak among men, demonstrates that we serve and we trust our Father in heaven. Amen. Let's pray. O Lord, our Heavenly Father, what a blessing it is to know that everything we need, You can provide. And that You love us with a love that is unmatched among men, not even a little bit. Lord, we pray that You would deepen our recognition of the love that You have for us and of the power that You exercise on our behalf. And give us opportunities to tell others. Because we know the world desperately needs the news of who you are and how you are willing to receive all who trust you through Jesus. And it's in his name that we ask this. Amen. There are a few psalms that confess confidence in our loving Heavenly Father the way Psalm 121 does. So let us sing together. Psalm 121, we find that in selection 260. To the hills I lift my eyes. We'll sing all the stanzas of 260.